Good to see all of you. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan. Thanks for joining us online. If that's where you are today, I want to ask you to grab a Bible. Um, we'll hand them out if you didn't bring one today. Typically, we put the text on the screen because I often work with smaller portions of text, but we're in a series right now where I'm just covering chapters at a time. And so um, look up the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. It comes right after Genesis. I'm going to be in Exodus chapter 5 in a minute. And that's page like 41, I think, something close to that. Um, also, there are notes pages. That might help you follow along a little bit better. There are um, brochures near the doors, kind of black and yellow. What is Emmaus? A little information about who we are and why we do the things we do. We'd love to be connected um, and want to say, especially if this is your first time or first time in a while after being gone for a bit, thanks for coming back. And I'm really happy that you're here. Uh, we're, we're looking at the story of Exodus as a prequel to Easter. Easter's the, we're in the season of Easter. Easter is the celebration of the resurrection which, which in which Jesus or through which Jesus frees humanity from death. And not just death, but all of death's minions. All of death's lesser furies. All of the derivatives of death. We haven't just been freed from death. We've been freed from all of death's buddies that come along and are on the movie poster with him. Like depression and fear and, and relational conflict and all the things that erode the image of God in our lives. That is what has been defeated. Christ has set us free. Here's the challenge. It's hard to live into that freedom on Tuesday afternoons. It's hard to live like freed men and women. It's hard to embrace the fullness and the abundance of the freedom that has been accomplished on our behalf by Jesus Christ. We don't always experience freedom. There are things which threaten to control us all throughout the week. Specific fears, particular addictions, misordered loves of all kinds, even unhealthy habits, things that have become broken like relationships that cause us to, um, to fall into all kinds of further unhealthy behavior. So these are the things from which we need to experience real freedom, right? We're looking for more than just an intellectual understanding of freedom in Christ, which is a phrase that Paul uses throughout the New Testament. We're looking for an experience, a lived experience of freedom in Christ. In other words, the freedom that we believe in, it needs to like come out in the way we live more powerfully and more consistently. So the big question is, how do you become free? And in this series, we're trying to identify each Sunday, one or two practical ways for us to step into greater freedom. Last week, I invited us to believe that God is for us. God is not neutral, passively observing, without an investment or an interest, no dog in the fight kind of thing, nor is God against us, looking down his nose, waiting for us to trip and fall. God is for you. He is for your wholeness. He is for your freedom. This can be misunderstood as, doesn't God want me to be happy Happiness is a shallow counterfeit of wholeness. It's too fragile and flimsy to hold on to as our ultimate. God wants you to be whole. He wants you to be free from the things that pull you away from this ultimate relationship for which we were all created, which is this relationship with him. So today, last week we asked, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is for you? And today we want to take that one step farther and we want to ask the question, do you believe that God is for others? Do you believe 
that God is for others. I held a grieving woman at the edge of her son's grave on Thursday afternoon. And as I held her, I grieved with her, and I invited her as gently as I could to believe that God is with her and for her. I invited her to try to hold on honestly to the tragedy of death and hold on to the presence and the love of God at the same time. Where did I get the idea that this was even possible? It comes from the conviction that God is for her. He's for her. Um, I believe, based on study and personal experience, that God is for her. He is for the grieving mother. She can trust in the character of God. She can rely on the presence of God. She can believe that God is for her, even in the face of um, what, what some would say is the clearest evidence that he's not. Right? Why does my believing that God is for the grieving mother even matter? It's, it's for this reason. That's the belief that enables me to stand next to her. Okay? That's the belief that enables me to encourage the grieving mother. That's the belief that, it in, that enables me to pray for the grieving mother and to advocate for the grieving mother. It is the belief that God is for the grieving mother. And truthfully, despite the tragic circumstances, it's relatively easy for me to believe that God is for others if by others we're talking about grieving mothers. This is an easy one for me to believe. I have no trouble believing that God is for the grieving mother. What I'm asking us today including myself, is whether we believe or are willing to believe that God is for all others. Me, grieving mothers, and all others. Do you believe that God is for others? That's the question. And I want to focus on one particular sentence in Exodus chapter 6. But before we get there, let me try to set things up by doing a race through Exodus 5, okay? So turn to Exodus 5 with me. We'll put a few things on the screen, but mostly you're going to have to look at your Bible, um, which is a book with the spine and pages. There's three main characters in this point of the story. There's Moses. He's been called to set, free, to set slaves free out of Egypt. He has a terrible speech impediment or something. He won't talk. So God gracefully gives him his brother. That's Aaron. Aaron's going to talk. And then the other character is Pharaoh. He's the king of Egypt. He's the one that's controlling this massive slave labor force. So here's how ex uh, Exodus chapter 5 begins. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. By the way, do you see that the word Lord is all capital letters? This is English's attempt to, the, the English language's attempt to recognize that in the original language, the word there is the proper name of God. It is Yahweh. Okay? So whenever you see all capital typically Lord is sir or master. But when it's translated all capital letters in our Bibles, it is an indication that the, the original there is the name of God, Yahweh. So let's read it like that because it, it packs a punch. Moses says, or maybe it's Aaron who actually says it, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. To which Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, responds, who is Yahweh? <laughs> Why should I obey him and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. 
Moses and Aaron then insist on this three-day festival. He's called us. If we don't do it, he's going to, you know, we're, it's gonna, we'll be in trouble. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt says, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. Pharaoh's response reveals that he believes, it reveals what he believes about the Hebrews. They're nothing but a workforce. They're just a cog in the economic engine of Egypt. Look, and so they should just get back to work because all that Moses is doing is impeding production. That's all he can see. They're just impeding production. Look at verse 6. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and stop paying attention to lies. So the Hebrew slaves are brick makers. Now, in addition to making a certain amount of bricks every day, they have to go out and gather all their brick-making stuff, all of the supplies to make bricks. The Hebrew foremen hear about this, and they get an audience with Pharaoh, and they're like, listen, don't take this out on us. We didn't ask this guy to come. It's not, how, it's not even possible for you to expect us to produce the same amount of bricks if before we come to work we have to go out and find all of the resources. Pharaoh blows them off and calls them lazy again. And as the, as the foremen leave, it's like they run into Moses and Aaron in some back alley, and they are upset. They say in verse 21 of chapter 5, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. And get this, you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, we didn't ask for you to come. We didn't ask for your help. You've only made life worse. You've made things way harder for us. You say you're here to save us, but because of you, these guys are going to kill us. Thank you so much. Moses, verse 22, returned to the Lord and says, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people. And listen to this. You have not rescued your people at all. Okay, so far, how's the Free the Slaves project coming? Not, not super well, right? Are the Hebrews any better off since Moses showed up? No, they're way worse off. It's bad. Um, it's all bad. Moses, by the way, has been resisting the whole time. The man is full of excuses. We didn't read this part. His wife is super mad at him. She is not on board, which is a factor, right? Now, the people that he's come to... Um, the people that he's come to save are accusing him of making their hard life even harder. And so he's like, why, God? I'm imagining Moses is like, why didn't I just pass by that burning bush? Why did I stop and talk to the burning bush? Um, which is where God calls him to, to do this. Listen to what God says next. And what I want you to hear, this is a little bit of a long passage. Listen to all of the assurances. See if you can keep track of them. All of the promises that God makes in Chapter 6, verse 1 and forward. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do 
to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. In other words, there's capitals again. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving. I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you up out of the yoke from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I mean, are you hearing this? I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will be with you in the land that I swore with an upraised hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. That is a great halftime speech, okay? That is amazing. He just Recover, he just covered like hundreds of years of the promises that he has made to his people, and he's renewed them all in the memory and the mind and the heart of Moses. And I imagine Moses like dusts himself off and he's like, Okay, let's do this. Thanks for the reminder. Let's go. And so he goes on and he talks to his people, and it says, This is the key verse for, for this morning. Six, Exodus 6, verse 9. Moses reported all this to the Israelites, but listen to this. They did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. What just happened? God said, I am for you, but the people won't even listen to that message. They don't believe it. Why? Two reasons are given. Because of their discouragement and their harsh labor. The word, the original word that's translated into discouragement, kotzeir, is a weird phrase that means shortness of spirit. It doesn't translate well into the English, shortness of spirit. The root of the word means to lop something off, to cut something off. It's like an agricultural word for the guy who's got the big sickle and he sweeps it over the wheat, and he lops the wheat off the top, and he leaves this short plant. But in this case, it's not the plant that's been cut short. It's the spirit of the people that's been cut short. Their spirit has been severed. Their spirit has been shorn off, sheared down. Moses tells them, God is for you. They don't even listen. Why? Because their spirit has been cut short, cut off. So the English translations try to capture this by saying because of their discouragement or some of the older translations because of their anguish. And if you dig into the word, you see that it is their spirit that has been severed. And it's not just that. It's also because of their harsh labor or sometimes it's translated their cruel bondage. Literally, the word is because of the hard work they were forced to do. It's not hard work because it was an inspiring startup opportunity. It's not hard work because I believe in caring for my family. Forced labor, right? 
Why don't they believe that God is for them? Because of their discouragement and because they were slaves. They don't believe that God is for them because they were enslaved for 400 years. For hundreds of years, they've been seen as less than human, as valuable only because of the, uh, the role they play in the bigger industrial machine. Their spirits have been severed. So an 80-year-old man shows up and says, good news, God is for you. And they're like, uh, we don't believe that. We can't believe what you're saying. They don't even listen to him. God's going to set you free. Yeah, right. Where have you been for the last 400 years? All right, that, friends, is what slavery does to people in Egypt on the other side of the world 3,300 years ago. Can you imagine that? It's hard to. So let me give you another example to show you what slavery does to people in our country 150 years ago. And this is just a peak, of course. This is from W.E.B. Du Bois' book, The Souls of Black Folk, which I'm reading. It's fascinating. The first chapter is a careful chronicling of the year leading up to and the decade following the Emancipation Proclamation, which you probably all heard of, right? The Emancipation Proclamation, of course, is the executive order made in September 1862 by President Abraham Lincoln, which said that as of January 1st, 1863, all persons held as slaves, listen to the language, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. That's what he said. Then, thenceforward, and forever free, which sounds wonderful, is morally right. But from both a practical standpoint and a social or cultural perspective is a massive, nearly impossible task to undertake. And as Du Bois points out with measured passion, when you read this man's book, you can just feel the intensity trying to be controlled in his language. And what he says is, for people who have for hundreds of years lived in a society which has, quote, classed black men and ox together... It does not easily change. It's not easy to change their hearts. It's not easy to change their minds. And once the 10 Confederate states were defeated by the North, almost 4 million previously enslaved people were set free. And Du Bois writes, the destitution of the freedmen was often reported as, quote, too appalling for belief. A couple other quotes from Du Bois. Daily. It seemed more plain that this was no ordinary matter of temporary relief, but a national crisis. For there loomed a labor problem of vast dimensions. Masses of Negroes stood idle, or if they worked spasmatically, were never sure of pay. And if perchance they received pay, squandered the new thing thoughtlessly. In these and other ways, the new liberty demoralized the freedmen. The liberty demoralized the freedmen. Du Bois describes in graphic detail these huge hordes of tens of thousands of newly freed men and women trying to escape violence fueled by shame and anger 
and resentment of the Southerners who had just been defeated, trying to attach themselves in proximity with the Northern soldiers moving back home for protection, only heartbreakingly to be turned around when they approached and reached border towns, which were totally overwhelmed and and totally unequipped to handle um, the problem and to help. He describes dozens of mission groups, charity groups, education groups, government efforts, which valiantly tried and in some cases made an impact. But ultimately, nearly all efforts were severely crippled, as you can imagine, since the funds required to even begin to address the massive needs of 4 million newly freed people who had been intentionally and profoundly disabled for hundreds of years were just never seriously considered. Du Bois writes, in a time of perfect calm amid amid willing neighbors and streaming wealth. Let me read that again. In other words, he's saying, in the ideal of circumstances, if it was perfectly calm, if the neighbors were willing, and there was streaming wealth, the social uplifting of four million slaves to an assured and self-sustaining place in the body politic and economic it still would have been a Herculean task. But when to the inherent difficulties of so delicate a social operation added the spite of the hate of conflict, the hell of war, suspicion, cruelty were rife, gaunt hunger wept beside bereavement, in such a case the work of any instrument of social regeneration was in large part foredoomed to failure. The very name of the Bureau, he says, and he's referring to the Freedmen's Bureau, which was a new department of the government that was tasked to kind of carry out the practical ramifications of the Emancipation Proclamation. He says, the very name of the Bureau stood for a thing in the South, which for two centuries, better men had even refused to argue. That which was that life amid, uh, life amid free Negroes was simply unthinkable. It was the maddest of experiments. Okay, so I realize the parallels between ancient Egyptian slavery and modern American slavery are are far from exact. I'm not comparing Abraham Lincoln, in other words, to to God. The situations are very different in, in several ways. For instance, the freed Hebrew slaves were not required to kind of eke out a new existence in the very country which formerly held them as slaves, right? But perhaps the stories do shed light on one another insofar as the devastating effects of slavery on the soul of the human. Specifically, the ability or the ease with which a person can actually and truthfully believe that God is for them. It seems to me, friends, that it's easier for some to believe that God is for them than it is for others to believe that God is for them. Just very simply put. If what you learned through life experience and if what you were told by people that you trust is that God loves you and that he's for you, you probably see that as a plausible possibility and you're more easily willing to embrace and believe God is for me. If, however, what you've learned through life experience and what you've been told by people that you trust or that are in authority and should be trustworthy is that your life doesn't matter and that your pain is somehow your fault, then it's much harder to believe that God is for you. So here's Exodus 6-9 again. The Hebrews would not hear the good news from Moses because of their discouragement 
and harsh labor. They could not believe that God was for them, and I don't blame them. How do you believe God is for you if for hundreds of years, in thousands of ways, the message has been essentially, we don't believe God is for you? It turns out that it's really hard for any individual to believe that God is for them if others don't believe that God is for them. And then act on that belief. Demonstrate that belief. No, you are valuable to God. Let me show you something of how God feels about you by what I'll do to help you accomplish and achieve and experience freedom. There were several points in the wake of the American Civil War where hundreds of thousands of acres were set aside for newly freed men and women. One famous example is the proclamation of, that was called the Special Field Order Number 15. It was, it was made by General Sherman, which promised every family 40 acres and a mule. Have you maybe heard that phrase? 40 acres and a mule. Basic tools to generate income and sustainability. But tragically, in case after case, those charged with the responsibility of carrying out the practical logistics of establishing former slaves on their own land failed to move the projects forward, and their story after story of meetings, which were convened to figure out the logistics, which simply devolved into debate about the merits of slavery itself, which supposedly had been established and made clear. In other words, it's really hard to help someone Step into freedom if you don't believe they should be free in the first place, isn't it? And it's really hard to believe you're free and to live like you're free if others aren't working alongside you to help you realize that freedom. So we're looking, let's bring it back together, Nate. We're talking about, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Egyptian story of Freedom, which is a, and the reason we're going there is in addition to being a prequel to Easter, it is a profoundly clear, articulate, powerful expression of God's desire for his people to be free. If you, if you wonder that, we got to read Exodus because he makes it super, super clear. And then and we're talking about freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression, freedom from viewing themselves as forgotten and unloved by God, freedom from death and all of its lesser furies. And then what I've tried to do this morning is overlay just a little small part of the story of slavery in America in order to expose some of the more recent and in many ways current practical challenges of moving from bondage into freedom. And I can't shake this single verse from Exodus. I've been asking this question for months now. God is declaring the coming freedom of this and this long establishment of his people in a land full of resources. He says in like seven or eight ways in that long passage that I read, I am for you. Moses delivers the message. They can't hear the message. They don't believe the message because of their anguish and their cruel bondage. And I discovered this in my Lent readings this year, like way back in February is when I started reading Exodus. And I just have been stuck with this. This is why it's so hard for some people to believe that God loves them, that God is for them. Why is it? Because their spirits have been cut short. They are discouraged, which is a, gosh, that's such a mild translation of that idea, isn't it? They're discouraged. But that's where it comes from. They're discouraged. Why is it hard to believe it? Because we've been discouraged. And because of cruel bondage, 
whether the effects of literal slavery or, as St. Augustine, probably and or, as St. Augustine puts it, because of slavery to sin. So whether you've been a slave or not, I think to a certain degree we can, um, we can imagine the challenge of believing that God is for me when we view that claim against the backdrop of our own slavery to sin. So two quick takeaways from this, from these thoughts. If we're, if we're looking at this story for practical ways to move into freedom, here are two things we could do. And I'll put it in the second person just to make it as direct as possible. First, do the hard work of mending your soul. Do the hard work of mending your broken spirit. By naming the thing that has discouraged you, by naming your brokenness, by being honest about the things that you've been in bondage to, addicted to, and and then doing some intentional healing work, there's no silver bullet here. I'm talking about hard work. I'm talking about therapy, counseling, maybe spiritual direction. I'm talking about a process of regularly confessing the raw, honest truth to somebody. Maybe some of us need professional help. Certainly all of us would benefit from sitting down with a couple of people that we can trust to share, help us walk away from what has held us in bondage and walk closer to stepping into real practical freedom. Let me tell you that, the, that Emmaus can help with the initial costs of counseling, if this is what you need. And let me pause also to say that we have a spiritual direction ministry, which is not the same as counseling. It's more like intentional listening, an attempt to bring clarity. And um, can, we, can we, yeah, there we go. Stephen Lenzian is um, available. I checked with him yesterday. We went on a hike, and he has some space to meet with people if you would like to connect with him. He's here today, not wearing a baseball hat, but it's him. Graybeard. And by doing the work, I'm talking about doing more in this case than hearing a sermon or asking somebody to pray for you. I'm talking about hard work. I'm talking about the prioritization of healing for a season in your life. I'm talking about investing time and resources and legitimate energy with the goal of gaining increased clarity around the belief that God is for you so that you can live into the freedom that God has made possible through Christ. That's what I'm talking about. I wish it was that easy. But what I'm reading here in Exodus is that there is a broken spirit issue that's going to require some mending. And the deeper this brokenness goes culturally and societally, the longer that mending takes. Um, we, need to, we need to do the hard work. We need to do the hard work if we want to be free. Here's the second takeaway. Join in the hard work of mending the spirits of others. We simply must live out the belief that God is for others. We have to live it out. Somebody's got to show somebody that God is for them. We need to join in the rich history of Christ followers who have devoted their lives to coming alongside those with broken spirits to demonstrate that God is for them, that God sees them, he remembers them, 
so that they can more fully step into freedom in Christ. I'm thinking of Civil War era New England teachers who moved to the Deep South to start schools. It's one of the most effective efforts of the post-war, post-Civil War efforts. I'm thinking about attorneys who provided free legal services. I'm thinking about farmers who paid an honest wage to freedmen. I'm talking about anybody who stepped into the gap that was being created between the declaration of freedom and the actual stepping into experiencing freedom. And that what all people need, especially those who are discouraged is, and, have, and have endured long seasons of hard labor, is the help of others right, who actually believe that God is for them. We all need that. We all, at le- different levels, need some. How did you ever even risk believing that God was for you without that other person who seemed to believe in your health and your future even more than you did at the time? Do you? So two questions this morning are these. Last week's essential question, do you believe God is for you? If, despite all that God has done and said, that's a real struggle for you, it's probably because your spirit has been cut short. It's probably because of years of labor, hard labor, cruel bondage to sin. I hope you will pour yourself in to the hard work of mending your spirit. And then the second question, do you believe that God is for others? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is for others? I hope you'll demonstrate your belief by helping them in practical ways, by doing the hard work of mending their spirits, mending the spirits of others. The, The amazing opportunity and the scary challenge is that God will probably call you to help mend broken spirits in the same area that your own spirit was broken. I'm standing here at the grave holding this woman, looking into the grave of her son, and I'm looking up the hill, and I'm usually just not this chance, but my son's buried up that hill, okay? That pain is part of what enabled me to say, you don't give up. God is for you. He will come along with you. You can trust in his character. You don't have to be defeated. There is freedom from this pain and this bondage. May we be um, graced by God to step into brokenness for the mending of the spirits of others. God, please help this church make a practical difference in this culture at this time both with the individual and kind of hidden issues that we carry, as well as the bigger societal issues that are ripping the place apart. We pray for wisdom and grace and effectiveness in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.